for preaching during the month of July. Um, I do not doubt uh, his preparation. I do not doubt his heart. Uh, I joyfully receive the word from him as he preaches. And so I'm thankful, and I'm thankful for a congregation. I will say that one of the best ways, and really the primary way that you learn to preach, is by preaching. And so thank you for being a congregation that also allows and affords Jacob that opportunity to continue to grow in his own ministry and his own preaching. Um, so it ministered to me. I know it ministered to us. So thank you, Jacob, uh, for that. I am glad to be back in the pulpit. Uh, I do love preaching, but it also was good to have a little refreshment as well. And so we're beginning our Mission and Vision Month We, for as long as I've been here. I think with the exception of 2013, in all likelihood, uh, so for 15 years except that one year, we have set aside August as Mission and Vision Month. It's an opportunity for us to look together at who we are and who we want to be and where God is taking us and to give thanks uh, for God and His provision and His leading. And so for our series, we're going to be going back a little bit to where we were in 2019. You might have thought like many of us, 2019, August, uh, you know, new school year's upon us, uh, this will be a great year, and I'm talking about a school year, right, and then the ch calendar turns, and the world changes, and so we wanted, the, our leaders, we wanted to step back, and go back to that time, not because we haven't gone anywhere, or learned anything, but that it might be a good time for us to go back to step one, and to consider who we are as a church. And so we're going to begin that with Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 1 through 10. And of course, we're just jumping into this book. And uh, Paul, at the end of chapter 1, has been praying for and sharing his thanksgiving for the Ephesian church. And then he continues in chapter 2. And that's where we pick up verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works with God, prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of his word again this morning. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, this day together to be in this place. And we pray that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and minds by your spirit. And you'd lead us not just individually, but corporately 
that you would help us to know your goodness and mercy as well as your calling on our lives. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And we pray for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I will say that I don't remember everything with crystal clarity. Though there are certain things 25 years ago, it was a Saturday and we were at church, but not our church. Lydia and I were there and actually there were probably a couple hundred other people uh, there with us as well. It was our wedding day. And this coming Tuesday will mark 25 years for us. And there's bits and pieces, right, that I remember with great clarity. And then other things I just, wow, it's a blur. And probably you can know that experience in that circumstance or maybe others. There are certain things. I remember waiting in the wings behind the, uh, the, where the stage was. It was a uh, Baptist church. had a behind-the-pulpit section with doors, and so we were there, the groomsmen, and I remember my stepbrother, who was a few years younger than me, looking at my pastor, our pastor and my mentor, and he's holding a little book, and it was something like manual for funerals for ministers, you know, a minister's funeral manual, something like that. He could read that title there, and I remember him looking, my stepbrother Danny, looking at Ed saying, are you going to use that? To which, in typical fashion, he said, yeah, what else would I use? And said nothing else, and then we're out. I remember that. I remember, of course, the service, me fumbling our vows based on Ruth chapter 1. I do remember that. Uh, Be thou my vision. It's convenient that Lydia's left at this time. But, you know, singing Be Thou my, My Vision together. And on and on and on the memories go. But those memories aren't pointless, are they? They're not purposeless, nor does that event simply remain as a fixture in the past. Where we are now has roots then. It's a reflection of, as of Tuesday, or on Tuesday, 9,131 days and some change because you've got to work in the uh, leap years. I did that, by the way, of marriage. Now, here's the question. Is that worth celebrating? Is that something worth acknowledging, celebrating? How will it go on Tuesday... If I just get up and go about my business like a normal day, well, probably not well, right? Y'all give me some counsel, right? It probably Is that worth celebrating? And if it's true that those things, the things in our lives, we would say anniversaries and birthdays and promotions and children doing well in certain areas of school or their uh, things that they are involved in, There are lots of things in this world that are worth celebrating. I know there's plenty of things that are terrifying, but we certainly can say that there are things that are worth celebrating and acknowledging. And if that's true, then what should we say about what God has done in our lives through Christ? Is that worth celebrating? And so this is my theme this morning. We exist... That is, as a church, we exist to celebrate the grace of God that makes us alive in Christ. We we exist for that purpose. We're here to celebrate that. And so I want to talk about who we were 
and what God has done and who we are. So first, who we were. This is sort of the first part of this passage. And by the way, I almost did it, but I saved it for this point. All these you's that you read in chapter 2 here, and you were dead in the trespasses, while that is true of us individually, that's actually a y'all. All right? I almost read it like that because this is a, a, a second person plural. And y'all, church, were dead in the trespasses and sin in which y'all once worked. Or if you want, use guys or something along those lines. I'm, I'm not good with that one. All right, but just note that it's, it's, he's writing to the church. While it's true of us individual, he's writing there. And he's describing the universal human condition. John Stott called these first three verses appalling truths about unredeemed human beings, which include ourselves until God has mercy on us. So who were we before Christ showed up in our lives? If indeed he has, who were we? Well, we were dead. There it is, dead in our trespasses and sin. And that can be difficult to perceive because here we are walking about, talking and breathing and doing our whatever it is that we want to do. Paul is speaking in spiritual terms. We are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. It's a kind of living death. Again, John Stott. For in matters of most importance, our relationship with God, we are unresponsive. This is or was our spiritual state apart from Christ. We were not just dead, we were enslaved. Look at verse 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul is describing is a direction of our lives. The course of this world is not a stairway to heaven, but a highway to hell, we might say. And it, Paul describes here real enemies of ourselves, real enemies, the world, the flesh, the evil one or the devil. But that does not mean we get to blame someone else or something else. We are guilty. It's not just a matter of for forces at work against us, but it's our own participation in them. We are enslaved or were enslaved by our flesh. That is what we want to do. We do it regardless of what the Lord has commanded. And finally, who we were, we were condemned. Look at the end of verse three. As after Paul describes that we're involved, we're implicated, we're engaged with these behaviors then at the end he says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's not a popular teaching anywhere today to describe those who are not followers of Christ as children of wrath. No one puts that on their business card. That's not what we want to lead with in evangelistic conversations. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't, but that's not where we want to go. It's uncomfortable. And yet... In the end, if we have no excuse and nothing but guilt to plead in reality, then without God's grace, we are justly 
condemned. It's not a name that we want, but it is who we were. This is our legacy. This is our reality apart from Christ. And that's what Paul is describing for the church, who we were. And can you alter this reality? I'm reminded of Adam Alter. He has a book um, kind of social science, looking at the way the world works in some interesting ways. It's called Drunk Tink, uh, Tank Tank. Excuse me, Drunk Tank Tink. The book is about takes the title from a jail that painted their walls pink, in the hopes that it might lower some of the outward behavior in the jail. But he speaks of something called nominative determinism. That is that one's name can have a determining effect on our lives or reflect it. Uh, It's a name-driven outcome. And he was on a radio show a few years ago, and he talks about athletes. Anna Smashnova, professional Israeli tennis player. That's a great name for a tennis player, isn't it? Or Lane Beachley, a world champion surfer seven times at the time he was speaking. Stephen Robotham. What does he do? Well, he's an Olympic rower. Usain Bolt. He asks the question, would Usain Bolt be as fast if his last name was Plod? These sorts of things. Do these names have uh, meaning? Do they lead us in a different direction? Can we change or alter who we are? Well, there's one man, and I shared this with you before, but And I tried to look up more up-to-date information, and honestly, it just thought I was looking for stock results as I, and I'll tell you why, because I was searching this phrase, B-O-H-D-V-F-2-6-0-6-0-2. That is the name that parents gave their child in the hopes that that child would not be burdened with the last name of the parents, which in the native language means slave. And so they thought if we give him this name, which means biological object, human descendant of the Veronins and the Frolovs, born on June 26, 2002, would that change his reality? He does have to go by another name. He goes by Borch. And his dad said that this name will make his life easier so he won't interact with those idiots who thinks one name name defines his appearance. I, I get the impulse, but had he forgotten about middle school? He's not going to escape the reality that we are, that we live under in this world, and neither can we change that reality on our own. And that is true spiritually. The unified testimony of Scripture is that we cannot, that we will not, on our own, alter our spiritual legacy that we receive. We receive the sin nature of our first parents. We cannot raise ourselves to life when we are spiritually dead. You can avoid the topic altogether. You can try to be a good, moral, religious, upstanding citizen. You can do good works or you can suggest that most of us will get a pass because after all, we're trying. But this does not change who we are apart from Christ. And so this is where Paul starts. He says, Christians, understand this. This is who we were. Now you think, okay, well, that doesn't seem like anything we're celebrating. I agree with you. 
But notice then where Paul goes to say what God has done. This is one of my favorite parts of Scripture is the divine contradiction. Look where verse 4 goes. But God. That's where it starts. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 4 begins. And we hear this but God throughout Scripture. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's a, what a Christian does. They own that divine contradiction. And Jonah 2, 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, but the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. And so we hear this, but God, beginning verse 4 and going on to verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So what is it that God has done for us? He's made us alive with Christ through his grace, which means you had nothing to do with it. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the degree to which you have been made alive in Christ. Not raised to some feeble life, not raised to just die again, but raised to this eternal life and seated with Christ. You know, we are not on the outskirts of a new life. But we are drawn in, invited to the party. Think about Luke 15 and the prodigal son being welcomed back, but also the older brother just standing on the outside, not joining in the party. How often we can be like that. And I get it. There are real struggles. We feel deeply real hurts and real things. And so we may not feel very alive. Believe me, I've had those days. But in Christ, this is the greater reality. This is the greater truth that we celebrate. And our feelings are not always the best guide to the truth. So we have to stop ourselves sometimes and ponder this. It's the theological version of pinch me, I must be dreaming. Because if you really step back and say and look, you should say, how God? Why God? Would you redeem a wretch like me? What am I to you? Oh, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I'm brought before the gracious throne of the King of Kings, then yes, we've got to stop and say that is worth noting. That's worth celebrating. That's worth reminding each other of when our feelings tell us of something else. God can't be this good, can he? Oh, yes, he is. And all that we are or were is addressed by God's grace in Jesus Christ. We were dead, but we are made alive in Christ. We were enslaved, but we are now freed to follow and serve the Lord. We were condemned, but we are now forgiven and reconciled. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming 
ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's for his glory and our good. Our new life points to the foundation of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You may not believe me. You are richer than Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett combined. Did you hear that? The immeasurable riches of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's what you have. Amazing. John Flavel, in his, uh, he's a 17th century English Puritan in his book, Keeping the Heart, which I've been reading this summer. He writes of Emperor Vespasian uh, commanding this senator not to come and speak the way that he was. I don't think he was a Christian, but how he responds is interesting. And Flavel uses it as an example. So Fluidius, Priscius, I guess, was told not to come to Senate, but if he did, he was only to speak what the emperor would have him to say. The senator responded that he was a senator. It was fit that he should be at the Senate, and if being there, he, were requ- he was required to give his advice, he would freely speak with which his com- conscience commanded him. So the emperor threatened him that he should die if he did so, to which he responded, did I ever tell you that I was immortal? That's how he began his response. And you know what? I don't know, again, his relationship with Christ. But I know that we could say the same to the world around us. Did I ever tell you? I am immortal in Christ. What riches of grace that we have. Did I ever tell you that I'm alive in Christ? And Paul says in chapter 1 that in Christ we receive Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have all that you need in Christ. I know it won't always feel like that. That does not mean we won't struggle in this world. But do know the riches that you have in Christ if you by faith have received his grace for you. And one day in the full view of these immeasurable riches. We will recognize the immensity of God's kindness towards us in Christ. This is no random act of kindness, but a calculated divine contradiction of who we are so that God's grace can be shown and we can celebrate it. Here's a short quotation for you to remember from another Puritan, Richard Sibbs. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. You hear that? There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Is that worth celebrating? Brothers and sisters, I declare as your pastor that it is worth celebrating. And so finally, who we are is met by what God has done, and therefore we can celebrate who we are now in Christ. And this is the more practical perspective on what I mean by celebrating God's grace. Because I'm talking more than just a party, though. That's fine. Let's party. But I want to talk about rejoicing and boasting and walking. Rejoicing in grace. 
Salvation is a gift. There's not one iota that you contribute to the work of God through Christ. Look at verse 8. This is emphasized. It's the third time the word grace has been used. For, you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's the emphasis. It's a gift. You receive it. And then you tell other people about it. Just like at Christmas time. What would you get for Christmas? What did you get for your birthday? What is it that the King of Kings has given to you? A gift beyond all gifts. And one of the ways that we celebrate that reality, rejoicing in God's grace, is our weekly worship. It's a vital part of the way we rejoice in the good gift that the Lord has given us. And we have opportunity to share with others. I know there are times to be away, illness and travel, vacation and those sorts of things. But I mean, in general, a pattern in which we're involved in weekly worship and not thinking little of the ordinary means of grace which God has given us. You know, we're not a flashy church. We're not about that. We're about these things that God has given to us, the word, the sacrament, the gift of prayer, of fellowship, of coming together. It is a way in which we rejoice in our Presbyterian way. I get it. The grace of God together. And of course, it takes us individually, but together we come together as a corporate body and indeed say to the world, we have something worth celebrating and sharing. And so then we boast in God's grace. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one would boast. Well, didn't you just say we boast? Well, yes, we do but in a different manner. Not a prideful boasting, which Paul is concerned about, but a place in which we're speaking and saying what God has done for us because we are changed. It's more like Galatians six fourteen. but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so we celebrate, we boast in this, and we come together. And one of the, my favorite things that we've done since 2019, I was trying to find out exactly when we started, but we make a part of our lunches every time, is to hear a testimony from some of our members about how God has been at work in their lives, how God has used North Hills in their lives. That I, You may not remember the financial report. You may not remember the next big plan that Adam's sharing, but you remember when someone stood up and spoke and said, God was with me when I was at my lowest point. God sustained me through these deep waters. And on and on it goes. That, at least that's what I remember. And what are we doing? We are celebrating, so we're going to do that on August 27th. And Cindy, you're going to have to say more than one word. She's shaking her head no. Ray and Cindy will be sharing about how God has worked in their lives, including through North Hills. And finally, walking in God's grace, verse 10. Notice the, the, ten, the shift in tense. Paul's been talking about what has happened, what God has done, who we were, what we've experienced. And now, verse 10, for we are, present tense, his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Workmanship here is the Greek word poema, from which we get the English word poem. We are God's poem, his poetry, his workmanship, his beauty, as we are created in Christ Jesus. And so we're walking in that new life that God has given us. And so we walk in God's grace in the good works that God has ordained for us beforehand, verse 10 says. So while we talk and celebrate God's grace, it's never without saying that because we're changed, then we live differently. Because of God's grace, then we begin to respond to God's command differently. We begin to desire and want to do what he has commanded rather than spurning it or ignoring it or thumbing our nose at it or raising our fist. No, instead we're saying, God, I want to be the person you are creating me to be through your son. And so this new life shows forth. And so this becomes who we are and how we celebrate. So on Tuesday, it will be our anniversary of 25 years, and we will celebrate that. We've got a connection with Ruth Chris. Uh, That's where Kara's working now, and so she's gotten us in, so we're going to enjoy a nice meal. But on Saturday, you all are invited to our anniversary party. It's not a church event. It's a Tisdale event being hosted here, but come and help us celebrate something that is worthy of being celebrated. But more than that, And this is on the back of your bulletin if you don't know it. North Hills Church exists to celebrate the grace that makes us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. And next week I'll preach on Isaiah 12, that second part of that phrase. And to express God's amazing grace to our neighbors and the world around us, Isaiah 12. And North Hills wants to be a gracious city on a hill that shines the light of God's love to every corner of our community. So you see where we're going this month in our preaching. And so, do we have something worth celebrating? I believe we do. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your love for us and the privilege that we have to be together. We know some may be absent or are absent and we pray for them and we ask your blessings upon them but lord we pray together as we've come into your house this morning that you would indeed help us to step back just a step to look and see despite the things that we feel despite the things that we struggle with that you have done something incredible in our lives through jesus christ your son our savior And so we give you our praise, we celebrate that together, and we take that out into the world. Lord, would you help us to do that at North Hills and to do it well? And we uh, praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed. uh, It's there.